Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. Here's one of the interviews from the stage of the 2016 Code Conference. If you like it, please leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay. We have the good fortune to have tremendous people one after another, and so I want to get right to it and introduce Bill Gates and Melinda Gates. Bill, Melinda. So, um, first of all, thank you for being here. I know you're really busy, particularly, we're always really busy, but particularly now you have uh, an event uh, or, uh, in Seattle uh, and, a can- and a kind of campaign you're doing uh, called the Giving Pledge. And I wonder if we, maybe we could should start by you talking about what that is and what it means and, and what's new uh, this week about it. Well, it was about seven years ago, Warren Buffett uh, said to us that we should sit down and talk to other philanthropists. And so we had a dinner and, uh, hosted by David Rockefeller uh, with a lot of the people who were doing serious giving and, and talked about what their journey had been like and what had been hard for them. And so then, uh, after we'd done about three of those dinners, uh, Warren's idea was that we actually create a group that could learn from each other. Uh, hopefully get better, get sooner. Uh, and that, so the Giving Pledge is now six years old. Uh, today's a big milestone. We're announcing 17 new members, uh, which brings us to 154 people worldwide who uh, have committed the majority of their wealth to philanthropy. And uh, we don't pool money, but we uh, share experiences. We find ways that we can collaborate. It's been an amazing thing. And we're headed uh, later today uh, to the day and a half annual meeting of, of that group of people. Which is all the more reason I'm grateful that, that you're here. Um, Melinda, these people have to be uh, billionaires? Mm-hmm. They have to be billionaires. To join this giving pledge, this yes. This giving pledge. Hey. Yeah. So I can't join. Hey, we, we'd love to have you give money away. <laughs> but no, probably you're joining gonna, this group. You're going to have to raise your ticket prices. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. People don't know this, but, but, but I have to say, first of all, both of them have spoken before, and Bill was a, was a, uh, a headline speaker at the, the, the headline speaker at the very first D conference, and we owe him a lot. Uh, and because of him, we have been able to raise ticket prices, so I'm sorry, but, <laughs> but not enough, apparently. Not enough yet. Um, so uh, you have 17 and you're, uh, new people, and I don't want you necessarily list all of them, but he, can you give us a few highlights of who some of the more interesting ones are who've signed on? Sure. Well, just recently, it's fantastic. Scott Cook, I think he's actually here, and his wife, Signe, have joined the Giving Pledge uh, with this round of pledgers. In, uh, Scott, who founded uh, uh, Intuit. Intuit, right. And Mark Benioff and Lynn uh, also have joined the Giving Salesforce, Pledge from yeah. Salesforce. And the three founders of Airbnb and uh, one of their wives have just joined the Giving Pledge. So when they sign, what does it mean? That they're going to give most of their money away? or The majority. Some... Uh, and of the people who belong, you know, a lot are, are going to give 99% away. Uh, but the only uh, thing we ask for is a, a commitment that you're go- going to give the majority away. And then we ask people to write a lever, letter, uh, which goes up on the Giving Pledge website, about why they are inspired to give, what things they're working on. 
and then uh, a lot of the people come both to the annual meeting and then we'll have meetings of people who are working in a particular area like charter schools or scientific research or uh, developing countries. So like-minded, like-minded Exactly. Right. Um, so there's a, a probably the best known or the best known self-proclaimed billionaire running around the country today is Donald J. Trump. Has Donald J. Trump signed the giving pledge? He has not. No. He has not. No. Has he been approached about signing no. the giving pledge? No, we haven't approached. We haven't, we haven't approached all the billionaires yet. I mean, eventually we will. Uh, uh, it takes Linda, Melinda, how many are there? Well, I mean, I know there's not none or 20, but there's not We go a by basically the Forbes list. The Forbes, it's now more than 500, but we well, go by Donald that Well, Donald J. List. Trump is on that, I think. Might be. <laughs> okay. All right. Are you planning to approach him? We don't have any immediate plans to approach him. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm getting, I think we should uh, probably let uh, this cycle play itself out <laughs> before we do anything related to that. He, he hasn't been known for uh, his philanthropy. He's been known for other things. Well, maybe he does it quietly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Bill. Good. You know, Bill, you were always the diplomat, I have to say, <laughs> always. Um, <laughs> so, um, what? now you've been doing this for a while now. Uh, it's quite extraordinary, and I think uh, it's the kind of thing that everybody at every income level ought to aspire to, and I want to get back to that uh, also. But what have you learned? What, what mistakes have you made? Uh, you obviously had money, and you got other people's money. I know you got Warren Buffett's money uh, involved in it and other, other people's money. So it isn't a question that you didn't have resources, but how applying the resources in an effective and smart way, what have you learned? That, uh, just give me a couple of examples of well, I think big lessons that you feel you've learned. I think the thing that we've learned is, first of all, it has really grabbed us in a way that this is how we've now, as you've seen, we've both oriented our lives to it because we are enjoying it immensely. We're finding places that innovation makes an enormous difference. And I think if I had one message to leave behind to everyone in the room is, is sometimes people underestimate that what they've done in their business can also be applied to philanthropy. They underestimate that the brains and the way they've thought through that, that that systems change or that disruption of an industry or that way of innovative thinking and taking a problem apart, you take that and apply it to other areas of the world and you can create amazing change. So, so you can be innovative in philanthropy? Absolutely. You can, can you use uh, technology in it? Yeah, I'll give you just one example. Be a multiplier? I'll give you just one example. In the financial services area, one of the things that makes an enormous difference for the poor, just like in, in the U.S., if, we, if they can save small amounts of money and you can get that banking system really working for them, they're not welcomed in banks, they don't want to travel the distance to banks, their money is stolen. But if you can get their, they have phones now out, billions of phones in rural areas. Right. So in Bangladesh today, now that the policy has been laid down and the technical rails have been laid down, a billion dollars are flowing a month of small payments, micropayments that people are savings. So when people can save and have money for school fees or when there's not a crop, they can go buy some on the market, that has a profound effect on their families and on society. And that we are part of a group that's really laying those technical rails in a host of countries so and I, getting policy change so around the world. So you guys, I mean, you know, uh, 
Bill is a historically famous technologist. I happen to know you a long time, just on your own, and you're pretty good too. So the point is, you know a lot about technology. Um, is is that a is that a a a truly disruptive force in philanthropy or not? Yeah, people have probably heard about uh, microfinance and the benefits there, but as it's really been studied, the impact's pretty small because of the interest rates they have to charge uh, in managing small amounts of money. The cell phones thing that Melinda was talking about, the normal progression would have been that that happens in the rich and middle-income countries, and then 15 years later it happens in the developing countries. In fact, what's happened, uh, because of our foundation as others, is the inverse of that. That is, in Kenya today, there's more digital money used than there is cash money. And so the transaction fees, the ability to save and borrow, is actually better, more efficient in Kenya than it is in the United States. Uh, and for people with small amounts of money, it's, it's quite revolutionary. India, just finally, the payment banks, which we worked for five years to get authorized, they are now in business. And so that same thing is going to happen in a, in a big way there. So technology that helps the poorest, whether it's vaccines or seeds or savings or sanitation, we're running an organization that's a, all about innovation. We spend, uh, of the five billion a year that we're giving away, uh, over two billion of that is pure R&D, uh, building these new so products. So it's not so different than people out in this room maybe who have companies where it's for profit and they're- Absolutely. And they're trying to do something maybe not as lofty, I don't know, um, a, a, a $700 Wi-Fi juice mixer, stuff like that. <laughs> but the, some of the principles are the same. Yeah, the, the bottom line is different. You know, we're measuring women's access to contraception. Uh, the a primary metric we look at is reducing the number of children who die before the age of five. And that, uh, uh, there's been great progress. Uh, that's down from 12 million a year, uh, now down to about 6 million a year. And uh, over the next 15 years, with new vaccines and better delivery systems, uh, we, we should be able to get that down below 3 million a year. Uh, so that's the, that's the bottom line for a foundation. So do you each, the two of you, have a particular passion or, or a particular thing that you, you personally focus on? Well, we, we both run the foundation together, and we both approve all the strategies of the foundation, along with Sue Desmond-Hellman, who spoke last who night. Who was terrific. Who's, who's, yeah, night. we were very happy she's with us, the CEO of the foundation. So together we set and approve the strategies. Then within that, we certainly have particular areas of interest. So for me, I have really gone all in on family planning, because if a woman has access to a contraceptive, voluntary access to a contraceptive. It changes the trajectory of her life. You don't commit her then to a life of poverty. If she can space and time the births of her children, she can not only feed them, but she can educate them. And education is about is everything. If she can educate those children, if, if the mom herself is educated, her child is more likely to make it to their fifth birthday, twice as likely to make it to their fifth birthday. So if she can feed and educate her children, she can also get a job. So she starts to lift her family out of poverty. But if you don't give her access to contraceptives and she has child after child after child,
child, she's going to have a life of poverty. That's just the, the fate of the world. And yet, because of the political, when I started to study this and look at it, because of the political repercussions of really what had happened in the United States, the global health community had backed away from family planning. A lot of coercive... Yeah, I was about to say, a lot of this is us. Is us. But if the U.S. doesn't set the agenda, it comes off. And so we had... Right, but I mean, as we're sitting here, there are state legislators in this country, not necessarily affecting people as poor as there are in a lot of other places, but nevertheless saying, we want to make it harder for you to get contraception. And that shouldn't be, because what we do in our country actually affects the global world. And when, when I got into this work, the thing that shocked me was I, I spend a lot of time in villages in slum these days. That's just the truth. I'm out at least four times a year in the developing world. And women were asking me for contraceptives. It was the strangest thing. I was thinking, wow, they know about them. They want them. They're saying, why don't I have access? I used to go down to this clinic. You know, it's 12 kilometers away. I walk. My husband doesn't know I go. And I would get this shot in my arm, and I went, and it's not available. And so when I started to learn about this, 210 million women today are telling us they want access to contraceptives, and we're not delivering them. And so that's got to change. And so our foundation has gotten very committed to this with a global set of partners putting this back on the agenda in 2012. What I'm trying to do is bend the curve. What would have happened by maybe, if we were lucky, 2035, I'm trying to bend the curve and get it to happen by 2020, which is to give 110 million women access. To but Melinda, you, t you talk about women. What about men? Men are important, very important. Yeah, I know men are important. <laughs> <laughs> At I, all levels. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, I really mean that. Um, uh, thank you. Uh, I just... <laughs> do men, don't men have a responsibility for contraception as well? They do. Um, but at the end of the day, the woman has to be able to take and make that decision if her husband won't take and make that decision with her. And yeah, but it, you're kind of implying you're not even, you're kind of not counting on the husband at all. You're basically Well, here's what, I need to tell you what, what truly research tells us. I mean, you have to research these things to understand it. This is one of the things that I think in philanthropy, that again, if people could think about their own businesses, you don't make decisions without good data and research. So one of the things we do as a foundation is we make sure that we actually do research and, and collect good data. The world isn't collecting great data on women. We're, we're starting to change that too. But what the data tells you is that in a setting like in many places in Africa, a woman cannot negotiate a condom with her husband. Condoms are available because of PEPFAR, because of the Global Fund, but women will tell you over and over again, I can't negotiate that with my husband because I'm either suggesting he has AIDS or I'm telling him I have AIDS. That's a non-starter. And so they have to be able to use contraceptives whether their husband will allow them to or not because, and they will, they will take that decision on themselves because they know that it saves if their children's available. lives. If, if it's, it's available. available. And Bill, what's your, what's your thing that you're more, more, more passionate about? Well, vaccination's been a big area for the foundation. And so understanding the science there, uh, who to get behind, what the new approaches are, uh, how to make those super cheap, uh, and then how to get them delivered. Uh, one of the monumental things, the thing, the thing I've spent the most time on is polio eradication. And uh, we have not, the world eradicated one disease in all of history, uh, which is smallpox, uh, certified back in 1980. Uh, polio uh, was almost failing about seven years ago. We couldn't get it out of India, couldn't get it out of Africa. And so we've really intensified using satellite photos to find the villages, using GPS to track, 
uh, improving the, uh, the vaccine itself. And so with any luck, uh, we'll have the last case of polio uh, sometime next year. We're down to two countries, uh, just Pakistan and Afghanistan. We haven't had a case in Africa uh, for a year and a half now, uh, in India for over three years now. Uh, so we'll add that. Uh, it'll become the second disease ever eradicated. And based on the success there, uh, we'll go after measles and malaria. I'm sort of amazed about polio, and I guess it just shows my ignorance about what's going on in the rest of the world because I'm old enough to remember the big polio scare in the United States in the 1950s when they lined us all up as kids and gave us shots on masks. And I mean, you were there, were there were a couple of years there where you were told not to go swimming. I don't remember what it was, but it was a whole thing in summer camps and everything. And, and so it seemed to like be conquered in the U.S. That may, I may be completely That's wrong right. about that too. By, by 1965, uh, polio was essentially gone from the U.S. because of Jonas Salk's uh, I, IPV vaccine. And so the world in 1988... So I just assumed that that then spread throughout the whole world, right? No, no, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of things like measles and uh, malaria that were once huge problems in the U.S., even uh, yellow fever, that because of our wealth and because we're not equatorial, we're more of a temperate climate, it's been possible to get rid of these infectious diseases, whereas they're still gigantic, uh, you know, killing over half a million children a year in the case of malaria, uh, that there's this huge market failure, which is that the people who have the malaria problem have no money. And so there's no... Uh, natural incentive to create a vaccine there. So only philanthropy and governments are coming in and taking on polio eradication. So the market, uh, the com commercial won't, won't companies work. won't Your work. voice in the marketplace when you're poor, if you need something like life-saving medicine, you, you have no uh, volume in terms of the resources of the world. And that's a known shortcoming of capitalism, which you know I'm a huge fan of, but it needs to be leavened by some degree of, of philanthropy where you say, okay, research and education, let's do more and understand what's really working there. Uh, likewise for seeds, making uh, those more productive uh, so that we can feed the world even in the face of, of worse weather. So I, go ahead. I was going to say, I think one of the things that surprised us the most when we got into this work over 15 years ago was that, you know, vaccines that we do all take for granted. We go and get our kids these vaccinations. You've had vaccinations over your lifetime. That there's a there when we came into this work that there was a 25 year lag between when a vaccine came out in the United States and it got to a place like Kenya or it got to certain places of India, and even if they got there, they didn't have the right strains. And so we started to say, okay, what's the role? You have to always ask yourself as a philanthropist, what's our role? What's the role of philanthropy? And what we saw was this market failure. And we said, okay, there's R&D work to be done. We're going to work on that. But there's also, let's create a pull mechanism for a vaccine. So we pulled money with governments, huge pull of money, this vaccine alliance that we keep raising money for. 
and we can go now to the manufacturers and guarantee a market for their vaccines. So the pharmaceutical companies are then incented to work on it, and that pull mechanism. So I think that's another thing that if you've been in business, you think about data, you think about markets, you think about your unique leverage, you start to think about what tools exist and need to be created. And that kind of thinking that everybody in this room does is hugely beneficial to society. And in philanthropy, philanthropy's role, we see it as this catalytic wedge, that is to fill in the place between governments and private sector to sort of push and push along the way where markets fail so that that society works for everyone around the world, not just the select few that happen to be lucky enough to be born in the United States or the UK or Japan. So Bill, you were one of the first people in tech to become very wealthy but but a huge amount of wealth has been has been created by the by the tech business in the valley in Seattle and in other places as well. Um, it, it, I don't know whether you have all this data, but is that is that wealth being uh, spent on philanthropy to the degree you would have expected, or that in other areas other kinds of wealth have been spent on philanthropy? Well. I've- I would love to see uh, a lot more done, uh, so we're nowhere near at the potential. But compared to other industries, the uh, successful people in technology are the most generous. There's no other industry area uh, that's as generous. You know, uh, you know, you know. Take Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Hamburg, You know, super uh, generous. Uh, most of the leaders in the industry, not all. Uh, have, have made the commitment and are getting involved in philanthropy even at a young age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I didn't get involved in philanthropy seriously until I was in my 50s. A lot of these people are, are thinking about it, learning about it at a, a younger age than I did. And, and what, what should they be doing with their money? I, I, that sounds like a dumb question, but I mean, you've learned a lot about it with, with your money. Uh, should they be is there some resource they can use? The, the, does your foundation offer that to them? I mean, what, what, yeah, our foundation. I mean, uh, we have somebody in the audience here who maybe has. I, I'm not even talking about billions of dollars. Maybe they have a, a half a million dollars a, uh, that they can give. How will they know that what they're going to do with it is going to be not wasted and is going to have the highest impact? Yeah, in our case, we have a, a staff-heavy approach to doing things fairly. Uh, Substantially, we have 1,500 people uh, who work for us, and so it's, it's an institution whose understanding of these diseases or of the U.S. education system, the kind of an analysis, the kind of thinking we have is as good as Microsoft at its very best. A large number of those people are available to brainstorm with other philanthropists and, and facilitate uh, uh, their work. You know, a good example is uh, I sat down just uh, like a month ago with Scott Cook and Signe, and you know, they really care about education, so I shared where we're working, what's worked, what's not worked. They'll cut their own path, they'll do their own thing, but understanding where we've had problems and what we're excited about, some people to go see and meet and partner with, you know, I hope that kind of collaboration. Uh, Is there some way they can find out uh, people with still a lot, but not as much as you nearly, to, to give? can go and find out. They're not going to get a meeting with you necessarily, or you, but maybe with these really smart staff people that you have. 
Is there some place they can find that information out? Sure. I mean, you know, our, our on the website, we have a or? team uh, that's yeah, listed on the website uh, that's glad to brainstorm uh, with people. And you know, I think a lot we're not we're, we probably do more of that than anyone. But other members of the Giving Pledge who uh, people may know, you know, just sitting down and talking with them, talking through, you know how you think about it. Do you do it with your spouse? Do you eventually involve your kids? There's a lot of complex things, and it does involve getting into a new domain that you're not going to be as familiar with. Uh, some of it involves thinking about your finite life and you know, where the resources end up going. Uh, and so some people tend to put it off, and that's partly what uh, we think that's a mistake. When you're young and energetic, uh, learning uh, so that as you can put more and more of your time into it, uh, you know, the, the, the sooner the better. And, and so, yes, there is a, a lot of people who are willing to brainstorm. Uh, and people pick causes, and that's what's amazing. You, you know, there's how you end up picking what you pick, it's very individual, it's very personal. There's no one right thing to give to, but there are a lot of lessons about uh, ways to go about it. Okay, so I can't let you go without asking, and I warned your people, I am going to ask you a tech question. Right. Not a philanthropy question. You used, to, you used to come here and just kind of talk about the agenda of tech, and I'm not going to make, try to make you do that uh, now, because um, now I feel like everything in tech is less important than what you guys just talked about. <laughs> but um, one of the big things we're talking about here this year is AI. It's been around for a while, but it's kind of exploding now. Um, what do, you th what do you think about it? Do you, do, you, do you think it's the big new thing, and is there any danger to it? Well, certainly uh, it's the most exciting thing going on, and it's the holy grail. It's the big dream that anybody who's ever been in computer science has been thinking about, you know, how hard is this? And very specific problems like speech recognition and vision. We now have systems that uh, are better than human level of capability. And so the progress in the last five years has been dramatically faster than in any time in history. Some of these techniques around deep learning uh, really are very profound. And are, uh, there's a recent book uh, by Pedro Domingo called The Master Algorithm, which I highly recommend if somebody wants to understand the sort of different types of learning machines that are out there and what they're good at, what their limitations are. It's, it's very well done. There's no doubt that in, say, a 10-year time frame, we will have, for physical tasks, uh, driving, warehouse work, uh, you know, cleaning up rooms, we'll have robots that are way less expensive than, than human labor for doing those things. And for various types of expertise, uh, we'll have better and better machines. And so it's an amazing thing. It's a very positive thing. It's you know, supply of goods that we can meet. It will challenge us in two ways. One, uh, that when you get that excess labor in certain places, how do you retrain it and apply it to other things? It's not like there's zero demand for labor until every you know, class size is 10 and vacation policies are way more generous, every old person is taken care of. Uh, you know, just go out into the developing world if you ever think there's uh, too many people and that labor, uh, labor has no value. So if we redirect it, that's very good. Then in the long run, there really is the question about purpose and control uh, that books like Bostrom, Superintelligence, another uh, book that I, I highly recommend. So the, the dream is finally arriving. This is what it was all leading up to, uh, is machines that are 
as capable and more capable than, than human intelligence. And I want to put a cap on this as well. Well, one thing I'll just tell you about Bill, which is when we, so when we go on vacation, Bill's somewhat moving to Kindle, but he still takes a huge bag of books. And I can always tell what's on his mind by what's in his bag of books. And there have been a lot of AI books. So while you think he's working on philanthropy, the side of his brain is also thinking about tech. I know this tech. guy. I, I, know. <laughs> I know you know that. He, he was actually thinking about this. A, a long, long time, time has ago. been for a long time. But the other thing I want to say to everybody in the room is we ought to care about women being in computer science because, yeah, because if you, you know, when you think about the U.S. being on the forefront, a lot of this technology, and when I was in college, I studied computer science and economics. We thought we were on the way up of women in tech. So when I graduated, 34% of undergraduates in computer science were women. The peak was 37%, and we're now down to 17% of computer science graduates are women. So when Bill talks about where AI is going, and I care a lot about where AI is going, I think it's, it's going to happen. If we don't have women in that, I mean, think about, about healthcare, artificial intelligence and healthcare, just as one example. I mean, you want women participating in all of these things because you want a rich set of a diverse environment creating AI and tech tools and everything we're going to use. So, boy, I would also say to people in this room, we got to figure out how to get more women. You don't girls just want it all written and programmed and run by dudes, but it has a woman's voice coming out of the I phone. really don't. No, I, Scarlett Johansson is great, but I think yeah. there should be All some right. others there as well. Right. We're, I, <laughs> these guys have a, a, a hard stop. Uh, it was very generous to, for them to come down because they do have this giving pledge thing they talked about. So we'll take one or two questions tops. Go ahead. Thanks, Walt. Um, everyone in the room and the vast majority of people benefit from vaccines. Um, but there are a few people that suffer from vaccines and the side effects, like maybe an MMR shot and a varicella on the same day if they're not well, or thimerosal-related or mercury-related preservative issues. Are you studying like a test that can figure out if a kid's going to suffer from the vaccination? Yeah, unfortunately, the, there are rumors about vaccines doing negative things that, in fact, they don't do, like the thimerosal thing. Uh, you know, we have countries that use thimerosal and did not use thimerosal. You know, literally billions of shots given in both cases, and we're able to compare. It is fair to say that there are, fortunately, very rare cases, uh, and the U.S. has a compensation fund, and we always look at the net benefits. That is, does the benefit of using the vaccine far, far outweigh any of the, the fairly rare side effects? Uh, one of the one of the vaccines that actually can have a negative effect is one of the two polio vaccines. The one that's cheap and is used mostly, the so-called oral vaccine, actually in one out of a million cases causes disease. And that's why right at the end of this disease, we're doing this very complicated thing to switch from that, the oral vaccine, to the, which is the Sabin vaccine, back to the original Salk vaccine. So getting that down in price, it's not as easy to administer because it's a, a shot. But the back, we have to really be hyper careful about the safety of vaccines because anything that affects their reputation causes people, vast number of people, to shy away from them. And then you get diseases that are incredibly infectious, like measles and pertussis, that you know, negative rumors about vaccines have killed literally thousands of people in the rich world who never should have died because their parents were, were afraid of, of things that they'd heard. So, you got to make sure they're safe and, and get, get the word out. Okay, last, last oh, do we have another question? Oh, yes. Uh, hi, Hadi Partovi from Code.org. Uh, first, I wanted to thank uh, both of you personally and the foundation for your 
uh, generosity in supporting computer science education and putting your money where your mouth is for getting more women into computer science. Uh, my question is, whether with you or with Susan yesterday, all the talk about the foundation focused on effectively the, the eradication of diseases and the work in places like Africa. Are you pulling back from education in the US or are there comments you can share about how the, the efforts in terms of education in the US are going for the foundation broadly? Yeah, so education in the US is the number one thing we work on in the US, in the US because we feel like every kid getting a chance at a great education is really what, what forms a phenomenal democracy. And the, the truth is today, a third of kids are actually prepared to go to college. And we just shouldn't have a public school system that exists in that way. So we have billions of dollars of investments in the education system in the United States because of that belief. And sometimes Bill and I feel that the hardest work, even though this disease eradication that we're talking about is very hard, the US education system is proving the hardest uh, to work on. And I think the thing that we have come to learn is the most important thing in a kid's education is the teacher at the front of the classroom. That if a child has an effective teacher, it makes all the difference in their learning gains. And so we are working very hard to have an effective teaching system and an evaluation system that's not punitive, but ha helps teachers rise up. And then we're working on tools, the computer tools, and there's a lot of disruption coming there alongside the teacher for blended and really a personalized learning plan for kids that helps keep them on the path to college. So we're working very deeply. I know you want yeah, to Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that because I think as people think about their philanthropy, uh, they'll probably start in their community and, and understand the social service needs, homelessness, various things right in the city they work in. But then the next step, hopefully, will be the US education system. We need all of you to you know, pick charter schools, pick public schools, get involved and see what's not happening. Because we have this huge problem in that the elite are mostly sending their children to private schools. And so the idea of what's going on in these, particularly in the inner city schools, there isn't this awareness to think about how do we get help those teachers be better? How do we get technology into those things? And education is one of these things where whenever you think it's easy, you can go to one of these inner city schools and be reminded how tough it is. If you ever despair, you can go to one of these great charter schools. And I was at a, a summit school uh, just two weeks ago uh, up, up in Seattle, and it's so incredible to see. And there are lots of people in the tech industry uh, like uh, Reed Hastings and many others who've gotten involved in this stuff. So I, I really encourage people to consider that as one of the areas that they, they uh, dive into. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Walt. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. Remember to leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay and be sure to check out our other podcasts. Every Monday, I host Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. On Thursdays, you can hear Recode Media, where Peter Kafka interviews the smartest and most interesting people in the media world. And on Friday, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge. You can find all these shows and more at recode.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.